Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today, we have an interview, a deep dive with our friend, Ben Claremont. He is a PM or a portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. And we talk about Skechers, which was pretty fascinating because it's a business I am very familiar with the product. I think most uh, American consumers are, uh, but it's a business I'd never really looked at. Did you have any highlights from the interview? Yeah, I think his overview of where they're going to get their operating leverage, I think the overview of the the management was great. He went through how there were a lot of red flags on the proxy statement beforehand and how they have this you know dual class ownership structure, the family ownership stuff, um, but how that may have changed now. And then also why they've been so durable in the marketplace and um, why you know they stuck around, even though the brand value may not be thrown around as being as high of a quality as someone like Nike or Lululemon, they've been able to compound the revenue over over a very long time period. Yeah, and before we get to the interview, we want to talk about our sponsor. It's Quarter. If you are a longtime listener, you are familiar with Quarter, uh, but they are the investor relations app for your phone. It you can get your conference calls, conference call transcripts, uh, presentations, all from one place. Pretty much any company. I'm looking at the app right now, and they've got a. If you haven't seen it recently, update the app, go check it out. They've got a whole new explore page. I think I might have talked about this last time, but you can go to make a trends. So let's see, war on cash. Click on that. All right. They've got Visa. You can follow, check out all their conference calls, Square, uh, or I guess Block. There's a there's tons of different options now. It's really cool. It's revamped. They continue to build out new stuff. If you're on iOS or Android, you can download it. It's free. Go ahead, check them out. And it's quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E. Um, they also uh, are on Twitter. They've got some funny memes. I, I think their meme content is top notch. So uh, follow them there as well. It's quarter underscore app. Uh, but without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. Today, we are joined by Ben Claremont. Second time on the show. First time, I want to say was about, gosh, what, three or four months ago. Uh, and we talked about uh, EW Scripts, if I'm remembering that correctly. And today we have a bit of a different company. It's a name I bet a lot of uh, people have heard of, maybe haven't looked at the company, but we're talking about Skechers. Uh, oh, and then I guess as a reminder, Ben is the uh, is a portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. Uh, ben, welcome to the show again. Excited to talk Skechers. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Looking forward to it. So, do you want to go through? I imagine people know kind of what they do, but do you want to go through? I guess the ins and outs of Skechers' business model. Yeah, happy to do that. And. One of the things I love about Skechers and, and retail companies in general is that it's a pretty simple model. The only real complexity comes from how they go to market outside the US, especially in, in developing markets. Um, and, and I will go a little bit painstakingly through that because it is 
you know, aside from aside from the fact that they sell shoes and apparel around the world, and 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 it's like in most in retail settings and in e-commerce settings, that's the easy part. But it's the nuances of how they do it outside the U.S. that we'll get into a little bit. Um, so they they really go to work to go to um, market in two channels, which is first is direct to consumer, um, and that includes stores and e-commerce. And then you have a wholesale division where um, they go to market in a few different ways. One is direct. So if you think of how do the shoes, like selling shoes directly to Macy's to put on a Macy's uh, floor, right? So that's that's the easiest one to understand. Um, but then outside the U.S., they work with distributors, joint ventures, and subsidiaries. Um, and we're going to get into the nuances of those in, in a minute. But again, that's where the, the little bit of complexity shows up. Um, the company is three segments, um, and, and all of the business channels are, are, are exist within these three segments. Um, and, and so one is direct to consumer, and that includes company owned um, company owned and joint venture stores. They have an international wholesale segment, um, and within that is where the bulk of their total stores are. Um, and so through that segment, they sell Skechers products to distributors and licensees who operate Skechers stores in over 170 countries. So at the end of fiscal year 2020, sorry, their, their 2021K is not out yet. So I don't have like all the updated numbers of like the exact nuances of where the stores are. But just, just to, for, for context, there are about 2,500 stores that were only kind of operated by distributors and licensees um, at the end of 2020. Um, and then they also have a domestic wholesale business, which is really the simplest business to understand. They sell shoes to JCPenney and Macy's and, and specialty shops um, all around the country. Um, and so before we go into those channels, I, I just want to take a step back because you said something that I think is important is that people have heard of Skechers. A lot of people haven't looked at the company. And so let me just give you a sense of, of, of the, the size and the scale of this company. So if I asked you what the third largest shoe brand in the world was, do you think you'd say Skechers? No. You probably wouldn't, but it's true. Um, the company was founded uh, in the early 90s right here in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Um, we could probably almost see a Skechers building <laughs> from, from where I'm sitting right now. Um, and you know, I would say that um, we have a long relationship with the company. Um, we know, the, you know, our, our founder knows some of the family members. We have a good relationship with the CFO. Their offices are seven minutes from here. So, you know, I think we sometimes proximity uh, gives you just a little bit of an extra understanding of how things operate and and how people how people think. And so, I think we we have the benefit of that um, at Cove Street. Um, so, the company just surpassed six billion in sales for the first time. Um, that's a real number. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of like apparel companies and shoe companies in the world that have six billion in sales. Um, it, but it's really important to note that the majority of those sales come from outside the U.S. Um, I think often investors in the U.S. don't appreciate the strength or the reach of the brand internationally. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about brand positioning and brand perception outside the U.S. But I would just as you're thinking about this business, think about it. This is an international growth story. Right, like the growth that we that we're going to discuss of how they've gotten gotten there, some to, to six billion. Some of that is domestic for sure, but a lot of that's the international growth. And so, it, it, how are they positioning the market? They go to market with a focus on comfort. Um, and I think it, like if there's a unifying trait, regardless of the type of shoe, comfort, and then probably value is another thing that they that they focus on. Um, 
Skechers wants its products to be everywhere people shop for shoes, whether that's virtually or physically around the world. So I wouldn't definitely, I mean, and my guess is your brand perception is consistent with this, but this is not a brand exclusivity story. Like if you were investing in Louis Vuitton or Prada or something like this, Skechers actively wants the products and the brand to be ubiquitous. Um, so and I'll stop there before I go into the segments. Any, any questions on what I just went through? No, no, I just find it interesting that, and we talked about this before we hit record, that my initial perception before looking at the business was this is sort of a stagnant dad shoes type company. Yet then when you go to the website, the the offering is much more versatile. There's a lot more to it. And it's been, it has a very different track record than what I would have thought. I know Brett has a question on uh, gross margins, but do you have anything else on the business model before we move on? Yeah, I just want to I want to talk about the three segments because I do think it's important to frame it because it's going to get to your questions about margins, operating leverage, like the things that you want to understand as an investor. It all you know from a bottom up basis it starts with the segments. So let let's let's start with direct to consumer because I think that's the the probably the most exciting one for them. Um, so if you look at the the, the Skechers brand, there are forty three hundred stores in one hundred and eighty countries. Um, but as I mentioned, not all of those are within the direct to consumer stores. A lot of, uh, sorry, direct to consumer segment. A lot of those are um, within the international wholesale segment where they are selling to their distributors and, and, and licensees. So at the end of 2020, they had about 520 domestic stores and 330 international stores that were company owned. Take a step back and, and, and think about that. There were only 330 international um company-owned stores. That's a pretty small footprint given the, you know, whatever the number of people in the world, the number of countries they're in. So I, I think that would indicate to you that over time, you could expect them to build, you know, incremental stores um, around the world with a fair amount of white space. Um, and so, you know, getting to, to, what, to what Ryan was addressing is that the, the sales CAGR um, in this, in the direct-to-consumer segment, um, over the last from seven, 2017 to 21 was about 11%. And that's even with um, a drop uh, due to 20, in 2020 due to COVID. So they've been able to compound um, direct-to-consumer revenue at, at a really nice rate, even with all of the COVID headwinds. Um, the, the most interesting thing about this segment is it's by far the highest gross margin segment. They, they generated 67% gross margins in 2021. Um, so what's been happening, if you look at the financial statements, is that the growth in the direct-to-consumer segment has been dragging up the company's gross margin. So, you know, in 2017, it was under 47% on a gross basis, and it's over 49% today. So um, that couple hundred basis points of margin improvement is how you've seen operating margins start to improve as well. The big opportunity for Skechers in, in general, two things. One, I think is continued international penetration of the entire brand. But the second thing is e-com is, is really a big opportunity. And if this sounds like a conversation we should have been having in 2012, it is because I would argue they were pretty late to the game in e-commerce. Um, you know, as of June, this is gonna be an amazing stat. As of June, 2021, they only had live e-commerce sites in five of the markets where they operate. Wow. So they're in 180 countries and in five markets, they had um, live e-com. Now you can look at that as kind of two ways. You could say, well, you know, what is wrong with these people? Like, didn't they see the writing on the wall? 
you know, in 2012, that e-com was going to be a big thing. And to some extent, you could say yes, but you can also look at it as an, as an opportunity because they've made a ton of investments to become in kind of like, you know, whatever, whether whether table stakes in, in, for e-commerce or even become more best in class, they've made a lot of investments there. Um, and so they started to go live with updated e-commerce sites uh, and platforms around the world, um, most recently in India and the UK, for example, and with a bunch more countries to go live in 2022. They've also said that they hope to be live with e-com in almost all of their countries by the end of 2023. So, you know, this push, somewhat belated, I think is a large facet of the growth opportunity over time. Um, and so I think there's a pretty long runway. Um, and that's and the, the hard part for an investor is like to, to magnitude, scale, like it's hard to even assess how big this could be when they're only live in five countries and you know over two years they're going to be live in another hundred countries. So um, one one question before we go on, and I don't know if you have the number in front of you, but how much of their overall sales come from e-commerce yeah. or the digital channels? So um, I don't have the as I said the 2021 K is not out yet. Um, they stopped reporting that number a few years ago, um, and so I don't have. There may they may have given some directional guidance like with you know whatever sub x percent but i don't i don't have that number at the top of my head um right now and i like that was one of the things i wanted i want to like dig into a little bit i mean we, we know this company but like as they stopped reporting that number um you know we haven't had a lot of granularity there in, in recent times all right uh that was a great overview i think everyone can kind of understand what sketchers business is now but the thing that kind of popped out to me was the DTC gross margins. That was at least the first thing that popped out to me when I was looking at this business. And you explained why that, you know, why that's the case. It's growing pretty quickly, at least compared to the overall business. The one thing I want to pin down though is how much do you think it can help with overall profit margins? I know they're right around, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think they're at nine percent for the overall business right now. I correct me if that's that's the wrong, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Do you think that DTC could help them push up to, you know, 15% operating margins, 20% operating margins over time? What kind of, you know, what are you guys expecting as investors yeah. in this business? Okay. Well, let, let's just start with what the company has said about margins. So in 2019, the company almost cracked double digits and, and they hit operating margins of 9.9%. Um, so if you listen to what they say, getting to double digits margins is the near-term goal. And, and, and you're right, Ryan, the number was about nine and a half percent in 2021. Um, so they're right near that, you know, hitting double digit numbers. Um, so the company's goal, as stated, without a time frame announced associated with it, is to get to low teens margins over time. Um, and so the company also has a 2026 stated goal of $10 billion in revenue. So that's relative to six billion today. So adding an, you know over four almost four billion in sales um, over the next uh, four or five years, and my sense is that the operating leverage, assuming they could get to those levels, would push operating margins higher. But to get into your specific question, some of the ultimate margin depends on the mix. So if international wholesale grows faster than direct to consumer. Um, that that the 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 gross margins on that business are about twenty uh, to two thousand basis points lower. So as opposed to mid sixties, more like mid forties. So if that business grows faster, you won't see the margin increase be as impressive. So to, to some extent, the answer we can see their targets. You know, in both near term double digit, longer term low teens. Is low teens mean 
13, 14, 15. I, I don't know. Right. Like the, like the, it, these, so much of this depends on what grows fastest and to some degree also, you know, how fast they can grow in e-com. The company has said that e-com margins are accretive to segment margins. So that means that that 67% gross margin in the direct-to-consumer direct segment, e-com sales are accretive to that. So, you know, there could be tremendous, if there's tremendous growth in e-com, it's going to drag margins up. Um, so you know, the, the simple answer is, I don't know. Most, you know, most analysis five years out is going to be fraught and difficult. Um, but uh, but just think about the dynamics, the faster growing segments, which are direct to consumer and within that e-commerce, right, have higher than average gross margins. So you would assume that that drags the 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 whole, um, you know, the whole gross margin for the business up. And then, you know, in theory, you'll see a fair amount of operating leverage. But um, to in to be fair, this company has has invested aggressively in F in SGNA in order to be able to create the platform for growth. Is there a segment that you think will grow the fastest? Is I mean, I guess I'm not super familiar with footwear wholesale. Um, is it is D is there like sort of a shift to DTC or what kind of are you seeing? You know, this gets a little bit into the nuances and the complexity of the business. Um, so tell me where, who owns and operates the stores, and I'll tell you, you know, where, you know, where the growth is. So if the growth is in developing markets where they don't own their own stores and they're selling through distributors and joint ventures um, and licensees, then you're going, you're going to see growth in international wholesale. Um, and that's going to be a lower gross margin than if they are physically opening stores in, you know, China, for example, through their JV or, um, you know, so some other markets like Mexico where they own the subsidiaries and, and it's basically their, it's, it's their stores. So, um, you know, it's, again, you can, all we can really do is go back and look at the track record of success. And the two segments that have been growing the fastest are direct to consumer and the international wholesale. And part of that is, um, you know, on the international wholesale side, some of that's just like opening up a lot of new doors with their partners. And so I would assume that's where the, they're going to continue to see growth. And that, you know, and if, and it, the, the fact is, if, if that grows faster than direct to consumer, you know, it's not going to have the same positive impact on margins. It's set for the fact that you're going to be generating a lot more gross margin dollars over time. And then the question is, how fast does SGNA grow within that? My sense, and the company has said that they would cap um, SGNA growth at revenue growth, which means that's almost like margin neutral. Um, but to get to their low teens operating margins targets, the math simply tells you that you have to have revenue growth faster than SGGNA growth in order to, to see margin expansion. So a um, little hard to know exactly where it's going to come from, what's going to grow fastest, what the eventual margin is. But I think the key point for, to, to understand is that at, you know, at the stock price today, we don't think you need to get to 10 billion in, in revenue and 13% operating margins, let's just say low teens is 13% for to make money from here. Are given the complexity, given, you know, just you know, the uncertainty of where the growth is going to come from and, and how margin creative it's going to be, our numbers are much more pedestrian than that. And we still find it a, a very compelling investment.
Okay. So you talked about the $10 billion management has that as one of their big goals. Is there anything, and I know we've, this might sound a bit repetitive, but it is so important to the, you know, the thesis, even though you said that we don't need it to make money, but if it does happen, you know, obviously that's, you know, a little cherry on top. How do you think they can get to $10 billion in sales? Um, is it all international or is it going to be, you know, domestic as well? Yeah. So if you just think about the math, um, off of 2021 numbers, uh, you know, if I'm doing my math right, that would be about a 9.6% CAGR to 2026. Um, so that's that's a pretty solid growth, right? I mean, mo- most of us would take uh, a business that's in, you know, a, a kind of a mature inger- industry, which is apparel and, and footwear is not like a, you know, it's not like a whiz bang new tech thing, right? It, this is selling shoes. And so um, there is some TAM growth and there's growth around the world, but, you know, that that's probably, that's probably taking share somewhere. Um, given that level of growth. Um, and just, just to provide some reference, over the last five years, the revenue CAGR has been about 12%. And that includes the drop in 2020 due to COVID. So, you know, somewhere still, you know, lower than than historical growth over the last five years, but still pretty, pretty good growth. Um, and, and the law of large numbers, which suggests that it's harder to grow off a $6 billion base at that pace versus a $3 billion base. So to some extent, lower growth should be expected. Um, but getting specifically to your question, um, the ingredients are there based on the investments the company has made in, in infrastructure, new stores, omni-channel channel capabilities, and especially e-commerce. Um, and so where's the growth going to come from? Um, China will be probably be a big part of that. Um, the growth in China has been really impressive. If you just compare Q4 2021 versus Q4 2019, they're 32% higher um, you know, in China. It's already a billion dollar market for them. Um, so that should continue to be a growth, a growth engine. Obviously, um, there's plenty of discussion about growing anti-Western brand sentiment in China. That wouldn't be helpful, but Skechers has been in China for a long time. They actually op- occupy a premium brand position there. Um, um, and, and I was joking. I mean, this is not, they're not selling Louboutins, right? This, 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 these are still athletic shoes. But my point is the gap between brand perception of Nike and Skechers is pretty wide in, you know, domestically today, but it's not quite as wide, um, you know, in, in, in China. So, you know, they've said that, that China growth is accretive to margins, um, to company margins because of that elevated brand, brand perception and their pricing power. Um, another market that's really exciting for them um, is India. I think many Western brands recognize that being successful in India is not the easiest thing. Um, but Skechers has been investing there pretty aggressively. They have a new dis- distribution center planned in 2023. They recently brought um, they they recently bought their corporate headquarters in India. So um, we should see growth in doors, number of stores, whether that's you know company operated or or, or JV operated or d- distributor operated stores, as well as growth in e-com. Um, and then I think Southeast Asia is another growth. I mean, if you just listen to John Vandermore, I think he does a really who's a CFO. I think he does a really articulate job of of saying. You know what? We just have a lot of growth avenues, and Southeast Asia is a wide open market for us. And so it's really hard for us to say one thing. This is the one thing that's going to get us there. And and I will say that as an investor, I don't know if I want to underwrite one growth opportunity, one growth avenue, because what happens if that slows down or whatever hits a speed bump or you know something throws you off your trajectory? Then the growth engine stops. I think Skechers has a lot of different places it can win as it has methodically 
kind of rolled out the brand across um, markets. And so there will be some growth in the domestic wholesale business. Um, the company thinks it can grow mid single digits in domestic wholesale. Um, you know, I think it's probably low single digits, but we'll see if the company's right. I think we'll see margin accretive um, direct to consumer growth around the world and then pretty aggressive expansion of international wholesale. Um, Cause there's still, as we mentioned, they're, they're underpenetrated in, you know, in the company owned stores around the world, they're underpenetrated in terms of like really big markets that are growing that where the brand can have a lot of runway. So, um, you know, I, I don't, it, it's, 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 thinking about a security where you have multiple ways to win. And I think Skechers has a number of growth avenues. Most of, you know, a lot of them are margin accretive. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to, um, I, I know I'm going to be wrong in terms of like the exact rates over the next five years. Um, and so that's why we build in a, a certain level of conservatism. And I think it's worth bringing up now that, you know, relative to that target, which is, you know, kind of 10 billion in revenue and let's call it 13% operating margins in 2026, you know, my numbers are more like 8 billion and 10% operating margins and still attractive from here. So clearly if they hit those numbers, um, the, the management plan numbers, the stock's gonna be worth a lot, lot more, right? And then, so that's just kind of like gravy and upside. And if you look at the history of this company, they have continued to beat people's expectations regarding how well they can do. And they've continued to kind of like um, change people's perception about A, the brand and B, you know, what that brand, how that translates into growth. I was reading through the conference call and one of the, or I guess all throughout, a lot of the analyst questions kind of talked about the supply chain stuff. And I forgot to throw this in the notes, but how has that impacted them? Has it has it had a big impact? And then what are they, is there any way they can kind of mitigate it? You know, it's 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 impacting everybody. I mean, if you think you, if you read through um, you know, the recent calls, um, logistics costs are up, so it's hurting gross margins. I think they're having to air freight a lot of product, um, and that's really, really expensive. And so if you're looking kind of backward, like it's it's impacted margins. It's probably they they probably they've said that we would we have more, we would love to have more inventory than we actually have because we could sell it. Um, and so they've probably left some sales on the table. And I don't know, does that ever come back? Do they lose that sale? It's kind of hard to understand. Um, you know, so I think it, this is going to be a headwind for 2022. Um, I mean, they have put out some, you know, whatever, continued impressive growth numbers in both growth, uh, both uh, revenue and EPS for, for 2022. I, I'm looking out longer than that. But in the short run, I think 2022 is going to be somewhat hindered by all of that. Um, you know, I think for this to be a good investment, you have to be willing to look out five years. Um, and I think you have to say that the Greenberg family that, you know, that started this company is like the first store in, you know, 1992 or 91 or something like that in, in Manhattan beach. Right. And now has, you know, 40 some hundred stores and 6 billion in revenue that they know what they're doing. Um, and that, you know, throughout that period, just think of how many, whatever, um, interim issues they dealt with, whether it was nine 11, whether it was most recently with COVID, you know, whatever, whatever thing that has happened geopolitically um, or economically, this company has been able to expand the brand through it. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I'm a believer in that, but I can't promise that, you know, over the next four, you know, four quarters or a year and a half, that that the growth or the margins are, are not going to be impacted by all of the things you read about in the newspapers. Do you see any pricing power for them? I mean, have they, I, I think they may have mentioned that they were able to get, get a little more pricing, but I think that might've been less discounts or so. So, I mean, yeah. So I think one of the most under-discussed things on Wall Street today is the pricing power that we've seen in in, in brands, especially like you know apparel, um, you know handbags, um, shoes. So what's happened to some degree is that the promotional environment has just a, just is completely different than it was when everyone was had decided that retail was going away and that you know malls were going to die and you know that whatever that 2018 2019 narrative. Part of that was because it was so competitive that the companies were promoting like crazy. And so that really affected margins and growth for a lot of companies. And that has totally flipped because of COVID. And so the promotional environment is just is very, I think, timid. And so if you look at the pricing power that that Skechers, Skechers will, will reports the number of pairs of shoes it, it sells in certain segments, and you can get a price per shoe. Um, or price per sorry price, price per pair, and you can see the pricing power. Um, and so they have um, less due to raising prices, but more so to the promotional environment being being just much more reasonable. They have been able to increase what's what's AUR the average unit retail price. Um, I question to some degree the the sustainability of that pricing power. I'm not saying that they're going to be losing. Um, you know, whatever, uh, like price per, sh- per, sh- per pair is going to go down necessarily like a lot. But my point more being that the, the promotional environment, I think, will normalize a little bit. I don't know if we go back into a, a crazy environment where it's just like you can't no no one can make money, but I do think it'll come back over time. So um, I look at that as, as I'm modeling this, because I like to model from, from the, um, a bottom-up perspective. You know, I'm not modeling in a whole lot of continued pricing power, um, kind of like pricing stability, given the partnership that, um, that uh, Skechers offers to its wholesale partners around the world, um, given the, I, I think what Skechers, their goal is to over-deliver comfort and style relative to the price. So basically have a shoe that is a really good value when you think about the price relative to comfort and style um, and performance. And they design the shoes to have a good gross margin within that framework. And so I don't see, and of course anything can happen, but I don't see a whole lot of pricing pressure on that. And and I think the, but, but the best case looking realistically is is stability in pricing with a, an expected um maybe more promotional cadence over you know as the world you know kind of emerges from the covid malaise that we've been in over the last two plus years okay we've got we have a few questions on valuation uh but before we get to those we're gonna hit a quick ad break look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. 
Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Okay, welcome back in. I guess one question before we get to the valuation component. And you, uh, when we were talking, bef- uh, I guess, when we were exchanging emails before the show, you mentioned that I should definitely ask about this, which is the AB shareholder structure and then the Greenberg's control of the company. So why is that such a big part of the thesis and just thoughts on that generally? Yeah. And, and I think it's one of the things that um, held us back from investing in this company for a long time. Um, you know, we, we are we are fans of owner-operated businesses. Um, family-controlled businesses are often, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, that some some guy in Omaha owns a lot of his and controls Berkshire, right? And so, but it's not it's not an it's not always a good thing, right? Because you want someone who's aligned with shareholders, who understands what shareholders need, but also can can take short-term pain um, for long-term gain and make investments that you know maybe don't look great right now, but over the long run are going to pay off. Um, so I think it's been this has been a a constant source of conversation here is like do we underwrite what the Greenbergs have done and have created? Um, and so I'm just going to take a step back um, and give you a little funny anecdote that explains our our thinking here. And so I, I guess lecture every year um, to UCLA value investing students um, within the undergrad program about assessing management and and assessing corporate governance. And I give students homework before the class that consists of reading two proxy statements. And the example I use of a bad proxy statement is a 2018 Skechers proxy. If you open up that document, you will see a staggered board, a dual share class, a laundry list of related party transactions, only five independent directors, multiple family members on the board. So like in terms of governance stuff, in addition, there's a lot of red flags. Um, and so, you know, as, as I'm trying to get the students to think about what, what's a good proxy and what's a potentially not a good proxy, right? Like, I want them to go through all of this and see all of these things and say, is this, is this a good, is this, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? You know, who are you partnering with? You know, is it, as an, as a shareholder, is a minority shareholder, is this a, is this a positive thing? Um, You'll also see the compensation was based on quarterly sales numbers, which I don't know if I've ever even seen that. Like that is such a short-term number. It's a sales thing. So, I mean, are you growing at the expense of margin? So, you know, I use that as an example of a bad proxy because I think Skechers used to be almost uninvestable because of all of this. Now, I will say the proxy has gotten a lot better. Um, the 2021 proxy is not out yet, but um, if you look at the 2020 proxy, um, you know things are things are better. Um, you know they're still compensated on quarterly EPS, which is not something I love, but at least there's a profit component in there. 
Um, they moved their equity comp to include um, total shareholder return and EPS, which I don't even, I think when I first looked at it, it was all time-based, like there was no performance-based equity comp. Uh, they now have six independent board members. Um, but, but the broader point is that, um, you know, as of the last proxy, the Greenberg family owned 91.6% of the voting shares and, and 15% of the, 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 the A shares. And so what that means is that this is a controlled company. Um, and the fact is, as you're thinking about this as a potential investment or something that you're looking at, is the Greenbergs are going to do what they believe is right for the company over the long term. And I know the company's getting some pressure from an activist, um, a company named, named Tremlin Capital. Um, and I'm all for outside shareholders having a seat at the table regarding the future of the company. But knowing this company as well as we do, you know, we find it hard to believe that any major change is coming. You know, it, it, yes, it's nice that they're going to be that they have a $500 million stock buyback um, authorization over the next three years. They definitely are going to generate a lot of cash over the next few years. They have $500 million in net cash on the balance sheet. So they, they definitely can buy back stock. But I think as an investor, and I kind of mentioned this, is you kind of have to trust that you know, they know what they're doing. The long-term results are very, very impressive. Um, but within that, you can critique that there's been a lot of room for this company to quote unquote grow up. You know, they're no longer a copycat designer, you know, that like when you read the K, there was like seven pages of patent infringement um, liability discussion. You know, I think this company was almost unabashedly a fast follower of other shoe companies styles and designs in the past. And what's changed is that I feel like they, they've gotten the scale and you know the the ability to do to, to create innovation and design and, and and new designs on their own and so um especially when it comes to comfort um and then and then also as we were talking about um you know offline is that john vandemore the cfo has just been an incredible addition to this company um he's a super professional c cfo um, I think with John as CFO, the company's aggressively invested in the, in the systems and technology that the company was late to invest in. And all of this should be helpful when it comes to long-term growth. So, you know, the broader point here is that you have to know who you're partnering with. Um, and the Greenbergs may have a time horizon that is a fair amount longer than most investors or their clients. So, you know, the things that you kind of wish had been done tomorrow, you know, may take two or three years. Um, and so, you know, that I think you have to appreciate that and just look at the track record and say, all right, well, so how, how has that approach worked over time? And I, I would argue it's been um, been pretty, pretty solid, the results. But, we, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't expect them to lever up to buy back stock or stop spending to boost margins. Right. They are going to continue to invest. They're going to continue to have a very conservative balance sheet. But I think this taking the, like the broader perspective is everyone wins if this company can get to 10 billion in sales. Um, but, you know, th they may do things in the short run to depress margins, to depress cash flows that make the short term results look crappy, all within that like broader $10 billion sales growth goal. Right. You also said, uh, I think you mentioned that there is an activist that's, or, pressure from an activist. Is there anything an activist can really do here if there's 91% voting power to the family? You can shame the company. You can, you know, 
you can make them, you can put out a presentation saying that they've underperformed in this way, or they've you know been late to e-com and all that stuff. I think the company would admit some of those things, you know, but you know, there's, there's not a lot to do, right? This is, so this is the good and the bad investing with control companies is that you have an owner operator who has a long-term time horizon. And, um, you know, if, if, if this person, he or she, or the, the board understands what they're doing, that can create a lot of value over time. Um, but you have limited ability to influence the situation as an investor, regardless of how many, you know, what, what percentage of the vote, you, you, you know, the A shares you own. So I, I just think it's something to consider. And as I said, this was, this was a situation that we were not willing to underwrite until we saw a new CFO, uh, an improvement in the proxy statement, um, a scale um, that added a diversity of growth streams and, 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 and earning streams that would, you know, almost so that, that this company wasn't fad driven anymore. You know, shape ups were really big for three or two or three years and then, you know, they fall off and then their, their revenues way down, right? Like that kind of fad driven, hit driven, copycat, me too brand. I think has morphed into like a legitimate global brand that um, has the ability to take share. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for us that finally made us comfortable making this investment. Okay. Let's uh, let's talk about the valuation briefly. Uh, just for context, do you have any of the, like, what is the size of the company and then how much are they generating in, I guess, how much do you think they'll generate in normalized profits? And then what does the company need to do to make this a good investment? Yeah. Um, so let me, um, I just want to be totally accurate with my, I forgot to check out the market cap. So as of today, the market cap is, um, so 7.3 billion market cap. So that's stuff, $47 stock, 7.3 billion market cap. Um, and so let's, let's talk about valuation. Um, let's, since we've talked a little bit about the management plan and the goals of this company, um, let's let's start off with that. So, if in 2026 they generated 10 billion in sales with the low end of their margin um, goals, which is which would be 13%, that would imply about 1,300 exactly 13 1.3 billion in 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 um in operating income. This company basically has no debt, so interest expense is not high. You know, tax rates have been in the twenty percent range, and so if you just, you know, if if you just take those numbers and add, they've they've been they've been kind of like flat to neutral and shares outstanding over time. But maybe, let's just be conservative and say the shares increase over the next few years. That would be, you know, thirteen hundred uh, one point three billion in operating income translates to about six forty in EPS on a forty seven dollars stock. So that's um, that's a multiple of seven and a half times. Um, the last five-year um, average PDE um, is about 20 times. So that would suggest to you a fair amount of upside if you could trade at 20 times 640 in earnings. That's $130 stock. That's 173 kind of 170% upside. All right. So obviously, that's the management case. If most companies hit the management plan, the stock will go up. That's not news. Um, but that's just to give you a sense of like, if the company hits, if the company hits on all cylinders for the next five years, you're talking about a $130 stock. Um, so I am personally a lot more conservative in nature, um, and I recognize, as we talked about, like it's just a little hard to, to handicap 
the probability that they can continue to grow at a nine and a half percent CAGR on a revenue basis or what the eventual margin is going to be. So, um, you know, so so as I'm as I'm sitting here today thinking about what would be a fair price in three years uh, for the stock, um, you know, I, I have about seven point eight billion in sales in 2024. Um, that's a 7.2% CAGR um, off of 2021 numbers. And that gets you to about 333 in earnings. Um, and uh, if you put the 20 multiple on that, that's a $67 stock price. And that's a 42% upside from here. Um, and, and just for some context, <laughs> the sell side numbers for 2024 based on CapIQ are 450. So I'm at 333 versus 450. That's a big gap. <laughs> and you could almost say that if they hit my numbers, the stock's gonna go down. Um, because <laughs> because they would be they would be underperforming relative to what people expected. Um, so that's that's one way to value the company, just very simplistically. Like we don't focus on earnings per share. We do DCFs. We do some of the parts. We do EVD EBITDA. We like to triangulate value. But I just like for for a simple way of thinking about it, management plan. 20, if you put a twenty percent twenty x multiple on the management plan, you're getting one hundred seventy dollars stock. If you get if you put that twenty multiple on on what I think they can do in a few years, that's more like a, a high sixty stock, um, and that's kind of corroborated with a with a ten sorry a ten x EBITDA multiple on twenty twenty four numbers um, that gets me kind of high sixties as well, and then on a DCF, which is something that we focus on a lot, it's just a little harder to talk about because I don't you don't have it in front of you, but if you if I have a nine percent whack that gets you a fifty five dollar present value on our on our conservative numbers. So all three of those things are suggesting that on particular on, on somewhat conservative numbers relative to what the company thinks they can do, that you have a pretty, you know, a, you know, a fairly undervalued stock with a with a significant amount of upside if they can indeed hit their numbers. Um, you know, and so understanding that I'm going to be off regardless of what I put into my model. Um, I, I like a company where I think the tr intrinsic value is higher than the stock price today, um, that you would buy more of on the way down, especially if they missed, you know, quote unquote, Wall Street's expectations, because you think that there's a compounding nature, right? So I, I think if you have a three to five year time horizon and Skechers has a bad quarter because of whatever, the margins are down or sales are not what people expect. If you believe in the trajectory, you would buy more on the way down. Right. And so we all we have this Buffett and Graham framework, which is like, is this a Buffett, which is a business is getting more valuable every day? Or is this a Graham, which is a, you know, a cheap security that has some kind of, you know, marginal business or secular problems? You know, this business, if you just look at the success, has 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 kind of leaned towards a Buffett. Um, and, you know, you, you want to buy a Buffett as it goes down. Now, I say that with a little bit of trepidation because you know, there's the margins and the return profile aren't, aren't necessarily on when you look at that, when you look at them today, you know, are they indicative of Buffett? I'm not sure. Right. And, and, and but some of that's because they've, dep they've intentionally depressed their returns on invested capital and their, um, their, their margins in the short run in order to, to create a platform for growth. So, you know, I think this company has, has continued to have to prove itself to the market and to investors. Like first, you know, you have to believe that this family is aligned with you. Then you have to believe that the brand has transcended some of what it was a few years ago or many years ago. You have to believe that this that, that the brand perception is is strong enough outside the US that they can continue to grow there. 
Um, and so there's, you know, I think if you're wondering why this company trades at, you know, you know, relatively pedestrian multiples um, relative to the growth opportunity relative to its history, I, I think it's because people just don't believe it. And I don't, I'm not going to argue that we're at some unbelievable inflection point where people are just going to wake up and say, wow, this is actually, you know, this is a compounder. This is more of a Buffett stock. Um, I just think they're going to have to prove it through the, the, the trajectory of earnings and, 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 and revenues and cash flows. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't expect, I think this is a, an investment where you wouldn't expect like some like overnight re-rating. What you would expect is just a chugger, just a compounder, something that if, if they can execute, you're going to see a higher stock price in five years. Um, and, you know, there's going to be any, a huge amount of free cash flow that, that they could allocate to buying back shares or to something else over that period of time, which I think, you know, gives you a fair, which it gives you a buffer in terms of a margin of safety. What are your thoughts on the share repurchase program? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't want to I don't want to overplay it because I think it's not their focus. I think if the stock stays around here or goes lower, they will buy stock here and there in the short run. Um, I, I think the bigger point is what does cash flow look like, or biggest quite bigger question is what does cash flow look like if they can hit their targets? Because I think that would they would generate a ton of cash flow if they can hit their 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 growth numbers. Um, but I mean, if you think about what they've done with their cash, they haven't been particularly acquisitive. Uh, um, over time, they will buy out a distributor or JV partner. Um, so when a market gets mature enough that they feel like they can operate it more like on a company-owned basis, they will buy them out. Um, but it's it's really hard for me to imagine them buying another shoe or apparel company. Um, I think they think that investing in the Skechers brand, which is you know which is you know I guess akin to organic growth has a higher return than buying someone else's brands. Um, and like, for example, uh, if you talk to John Vandemore, he'll joke with you that it's that the level of their apparel sales are almost like, it's like almost embarrassing given their shoe sales. Like they think that they have a huge opportunity in apparel that they just haven't been able to, to, to hit and that they, you know, they, they're, they're trying to execute on now. So just that, like, why would you buy another apparel brand if you think that you have a huge runway with your own brand? Um, and so just in general, they think there's a huge organic growth opportunity. So I don't, I don't think they need to buy growth. So if, if I'm thinking about where the capital is going to go, first, it's going to go into OpEx and CapEx to grow the footprint and their capabilities around the world. They'll continue to build retail stores. I think every once in a while, you'll see them buy out a distribution partner and kind of the residual is the buyback. Um, and so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, they don't wake up every day thinking like we need to have a buyback to support the stock. I think they are, they are thinking that we, we generate a lot of cash. We have a lot of cash on the balance sheet. So why not have a $500 million buyback just to, just to, to buy it opportunistically? Um, you know, I, I think if you think about the family overall, their net worth is highly tied to the, 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 the pace of the stock, you know, to where the stock is and, and the pace of the stock appreciation. But it's not their focus every day. I think it, for and this is and you can you can take this for what it is and you can you can like it or not like it. But I think their focus is on growing the business, and and their belief is that the stock price will will get dragged up if they can perform. So um, you know I, I I would I would you know regardless of activist pressure, I would be surprised if they did something that was like more typical you know activist shareholder friendly in the short run, um, rather than just continuing to chug along and focus on the long run. 
So a big question with Skechers and people thinking Nike, Adidas, all that good stuff is competition is fierce in apparel and footwear. How is Skechers, and I think people would kind of be surprised at this because they have been able to defend themselves over a few decades. How have they defended their position in the marketplace for so many years? I mean, it's even better than that. They've more than defended themselves. I mean, I don't, I don't think the footwear category grows as fast as they've grown. So they've, they've taken share from others and in, as, 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 as they've grown, um, it's really been an amazing story. And I think getting to the people don't just, just don't believe in it. People ask them all the time, how have you done it? And I've thought about this myself. Like, like you look at the numbers and you're just like, I don't, it doesn't make sense. Like you, you, is, is this a great brand? Is it a good brand? Is it a me too brand? Is it a copycat brand? Like, what is it? How have they done it? And, and, and getting to my, my, one of my like few points I made a few minutes ago is like, it hasn't been one thing, you know, and I don't, I don't, and as I said, I don't, I don't want a company that only has one thing going for it. And I want a lot of ways to win. So um, I think the whole, the, the success has been more holistic than relying on one element. And let me just give you some of the attributes that I think have contributed to it. And I think this, you know, it mimics kind of what the company's talked about, but I've kind of like thought about it and try to collate a list of things that, that I think have differentiated it and allowed it to take share is one, they're a really good partner for retailers. Like they're on time, they have a breadth and a depth of product that people that, that are that within accessible price category, um, you know, the TAM is large for the, the, the market that, that, that they serve in terms of, you know, it's like a value focused customer. Um, they have a broad assortment that includes, you know, anything from work to athletic to, um, you know, to casual, as, as we talked about. So they have a really broad assortment, which is, makes them a really good partner for, for having shelf space. Right. Instead of having, you know, a bunch of different because there are tons of shoe brands. Obviously, we think about the big ones, but there's so many different shoe brands. You know, they can be kind of a one stop shop for some of their customers. Right. And so from a from a from a wholesale perspective, I think they they become a very good partner um, when it comes to, you know, e, you know, e-commerce and direct to consumer. They've just been diligently building the brand outside the U.S., and you know they've been able to build a premium brand position relative to what it is in domestically in places like China, um, and I, and I think that's that's been really helpful um, over time, and, and it's been it's been one of the reasons why margins have been have been dragged up over time. Um, you know I think they've they've become a very competent player um, after you know after kind of years of not investing enough in systems and e-commerce. Like they're they're kind of they're bringing their systems and 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 um, and uh, technology in you know kind of into the modern days and, and that what that means is that um, you know they have a platform for growth that can continue um, and but you know I think as a partner uh, both on, on the wholesale side you want somebody who you know is is kind of like you know has at least a table stakes when it comes to technology. Um, I think they've become a little tighter when it comes to operations and, and have become more of a professional company. And that's, I think John Vandemore deserves a lot of credit there. Um, they've just methodically expanded into new markets and adjacent markets. And that's how you get into 170 plus countries. Um, but I think from the consumer's perspective, they've really had kind of a bottom up focus on the consumer and what the consumer needs as opposed to being like maniacally focused on raising prices and, and, and the average unit retail, right? Like having a value focused as opposed to being so focused on price. 
So as I said, think of it as over-delivering on style, performance, and comfort relative to the prices they charge. Um, and you know, and, and I think if you they, obviously they advertise a little bit, and you know they have the celebrity sponsorships with kind of like B and C list celebrities. Um, I'm sure that helps with brand awareness. But I mean, I don't, you know, I know you guys were, were wondering about that. I, I, I don't think that's a key variable. I think it's the holistic like accumulation of all of the things that I just mentioned, being a good partner to wholesalers, um, as it's a, being a good wholesale partner to retailers around the world, establishing the, the brand around, outside the US and um, you know, bringing, bringing in new, really good JV partners, right? That's another thing. It's like when you go into another new country, you have to be really selective who you're gonna work with. And I think the, if you look at the growth in doors and revenue that they've had in these countries, it's been impressive. And it appears that they found good partners there. So again, it's like, it's not one thing and the competition will continue to be fierce. Um, but, you know, I don't, I think as a, as a shareholder and as someone who's trying to take a longer term perspective, there's just a lot of white space, right? regardless of, of what country or what mode of distribution that they're going to be going through, or, um, you know, is it, is it virtual e-commerce or is it in store? You know, I, I think there's just plenty, there's plenty of white space and it, it's like, it's almost crazy to say it. it's a $6 billion brand that they're underpenetrated. Um, but it's, you know, as, as they've spent the last few years becoming, you know, having, building the infrastructure for growth, like it's not like they're going to flip a switch and all of a sudden the growth is going to accelerate. I just think it's an enabler of continued growth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't, it's getting to the point. I don't know where it's going to come from, but it's been there. The infrastructure is there. Now they just need to execute. Okay. One last question. And we kind of already, you already kind of touched on your, I guess, valuation case. Um, so I want to try to, flip it. And we asked something sort of along these lines last time you were on the show, but if you were writing, if you had to write a short thesis today for Skechers, what would the rationale be? Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I already, I've, I'm pretty good at getting bad talking against myself. So, I mean, I've, I've highlighted a number of these things. One is the, the AB shareholder structure, right? Like it, it's possible that um, the Greenbergs are not aligned with us as minority shareholders and they will do things that are you know in theory could benefit them versus us right and and so some of that so again you have to trust these people that they know what they're doing and that they have your interest in at heart um so i think that's the that's always been our number one like we we, we in our process I don't, I don't remember if we talked about this but we we do for every idea we talk about the short points and number one short point for sketchers was always the um the uh um the, the the ab share structure and the, and the family control um and you know the maybe you know I'm, I'm not i'm fine with an owner operator with a long time horizon but the question is you know like <laughs> we have clients and and we want them to, to to benefit from 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 you know this investment and so if they're if they're, they're they're thinking they'll hit their goals in 20 years i mean that's probably a little longer than we would want so that's number one secondly you know china has been a big growth market for them They've been really successful there. Um, as I mentioned, they have a premium, kind of a premium brand there relative to their domestic brand. Um, if, if that were to slow down, um, whether it's new doors, 
new partnerships or just like, you know, the, the ability for the brand to grow, that would, I think, be a certain drive. I mean, it's already a billion dollar business on a $6 billion company. So if that were down 20% in a year, that would make it a lot harder to grow. So I think China, you know, given everything that any Western brand faces when, when operating in China, I think that's, that's a, that is a little bit of a risk. Um, what else? Uh, I mean, I think the ultimate margin trajectory may not be anywhere near what they think it is. Um, and I think that's a, I think that is a concern for us. It's always been a concern for us. You know, we, I don't want to be totally backward looking and say, only look at the business and say, well, this is what they've done historically. Um, you know, what could it, you know, not, not, and not think about what could they get to, but for sure, like this, their margins have been sub 10, the operating margins have been sub 10% the entire, for the history of basically this company. And so, you know, is that, is that in, is, is it an indication of the growth spending that they they do um, in, in, in OPEX, specifically in SG&A, um, or is that a ceiling, right? Is it is it just that they, they that operating leverage won't be there? And I think that's that's where I have the most conservatism in my model in terms of like what what margins could could they eventually get to? I mean, I, like if they hit, if they hit low teens, well, then that would be amazing. But you know, I think we, anyone approaching this should, should could consider the fact that maybe the ten percent is is the ceiling, and you're not going to see anything better. Um, I, I don't worry a whole lot about um, capital out like very like unshareholder friendly capital allocation. I don't I don't see them like paying eight times revenue and 30 times EBITDA for, you know, some big acquisition that, that doesn't sound like, I mean, if it, it that would be a big shock to me. So I, I think it's those three it's management in terms of, and, 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 you know, how, in how they're controlling and, and the family's control, ultimate margin trajectory. And then what happens in China um, are going to be really key variables. Um, and if, and if, you know, if adverse things happen there, um, you know, it's gonna it's gonna certainly be more difficult to, to to for the stock to hit the prices that we think it can over the next few years. Okay, that's all the questions we have, uh, Brett. Unless you have any more. Uh, nope, all good. Okay, um, I guess for any listeners that uh, want to keep track of you or Cove Street, what's the best place to do that? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, CoveStreetCapital.com. Um, we have a lot of information. I do a few, a fair number of um, presentations on, on our ideas. I also have my own podcast called Compounders, where we interview public company CEOs about how they've created value over time. Um, so you can check that out. We, you know, we just released an episode today, and I think we've done 26 or 27 episodes now. Um, also, uh, Twitter, um, uh, at Ben Claremont. You can find me. I, I tweet a little bit, mostly about podcast stuff, but um, I'm also on Twitter. Um, but I'm also always happy to talk to people if you reach out to me over Twitter, um, talk about ideas or, um, you know, about compounders, whatever. I'm just happy to, to, to meet new people. Perfect. That's going to do it for us. We want to remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.